Before we get going on today's episode of the Total Soccer Show, in which we go deep on all things La Liga, uh, Copa del Rey, and a little bit Champions League, I wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by NetSuite. Successful companies know faster growth requires the right tools. If you're doing one, ten, or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, I know which one of those I would prefer to be doing, uh, NetSuite by Oracle gives a full picture of your business, uh, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more all in one place. Over 19,000 companies trust NetSuite, the world's number one cloud business system. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash listen. That's netsuite.com slash listen. Everybody and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host for today, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me. He is in Richmond. He's talking to Joe Lowry. I'm letting them talk MLS. I'm instead talking to Graham Ruthven about La Liga. Graham has been on the show uh, several times in the past. We always love having him on because he brings a lot of knowledge to everything La Liga, to a little bit Champions League as well. He knows a lot about the Champions League, but we only talk about it a little bit. Uh, but in this episode, we do go Champions League at the very end, as well as maybe relegation battles in La Liga. But we also talk Copa del Rey. This is recorded after both Barcelona and Real Madrid were eliminated late last week. So sort of what that means for their season as a whole, what their current states are, but then the kind of situations with Atletico Madrid, with Atletico Bilbao, with Real Sociedad, with Getafe, many other teams get mentions, get conversations in there. It is a very enjoyable podcast. If I do say so myself, I'm a little bit biased, but I hope you'll agree. Uh, And I will leave it to you, as I say. With me on the line once again, making uh, yet another appearance on the Total Soccer Show is Mr. Graham Ruthven. Graham, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me today. That's no problem, Taylor. It's always fun to be on. I say yet another appearance as though it's like a thing that always happens. When we have you on, it tends to be to talk La Liga, to talk a little Champions League. But usually La Liga, when some sort of dramatic results happen, and the reason why I got in touch with you, uh, number one, you're good at what you do, obviously. Number two, the Scottish accent, always nice. But number three <laughs> was the uh, the Copa del Rey uh, upsets last week for both Real Madrid and Barcelona, which is kind of where I want to start. Were those as big of upsets as they seemed to me on paper? Or is this a situation in which Barcelona and Real Madrid maybe not prior prioritizing Copa del Rey as much as they are La Liga and the Champions League? They, they were certainly upsets, that's the first thing to say, but I, I was covering both those games for, for Eurosport and actually sitting in the in the build-up to the Real Madrid uh, Sociedad game, which was the first one that, that night, I actually thought to myself it was it was fairly feasible that both Real Madrid and Barcelona, Barcelona could um, go out on the same night. I didn't have the foresight to put any money on that. Vegas did not get a call from me, unfortunately. But I did. I did think that before before the games, so particularly in the case of Real Madrid, Zidane has um, he's never really been a fan of the, the Copa del Rey. I don't think you'll need to check this. I don't think he's ever won it as a player or a manager. Ooh, I don't think he's ever um, might have to check that one. But it's, he's certainly not won it a lot if he if he has won it. Um, and so he made a few changes to his team. Um, for that game against La Real, and 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 really at the moment Real Madrid are in a position where they're they're a strange team. Real Madrid, they're three points at the, clear at the top of La Liga. They've they're kind of building momentum. They're winning games through muscle memory. But if if you if they deviate from that starting lineup that they have, they they seem to encounter really, really uh, you know difficult problems, and that's what happened against Sociedad and, and Barcelona at the moment. 
Again, they're a strange team to watch with uh, this this transition they're going through with Kike Setien. Injuries have, have have made things even more difficult for them. And and an Athletic Club uh, Bilbao is is one of the most difficult places to go in all of Spanish football. Barcelona lost there on the the opening day of the La Liga season all the, all the way back in August, and and the same thing happened again here. Almost a carbon copy actually, because it was a it was a late stoppage time goal and. In both games, back in August, it was uh, Adarith, and, and in this game, it was uh, Naki Williams. So, um, yeah, upset, certainly, but you you could have maybe predicted them. So, uh, I want to talk Real Madrid-Barcelona, but I actually want to stick with Bilbao for a moment, because uh, I've never been to Spain. Uh, we hear very often about like kind of the regional rivalries, uh, the regional derbies, maybe, maybe if you want to give them the derby credit. But why is Bilbao so difficult? Uh, why is it such a difficult place to go to? Well, the the atmosphere is it's it's one of the hottest atmospheres um, in all of Spanish football. There were concerns when they they left the the San Mames, which was their the kind of spiritual home. They left there. I mean, it must be five years ago now. And it was and if I was to compare it to a stadium, it would be similar to the Vicente Calderon and and the relationship that Atleti had with the Vicente Calderon. You know, it was very much in kind of a working class area of the of the city. Um, and there, there was concerns that going to a, a shimmering, state-of-the-art spaceship of a stadium would kind of eliminate that. And and it hasn't really. I mean, they, they actually do struggle to fill it, um, Bilbao. I think the game against Barcelona on Thursday night was actually the record attendance that they, they'd ever had at the new stadium. So it's maybe slightly slightly big for them. But in terms of the atmosphere it generates, it's... Uh, it's 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 really kind of second to none in, in Spain, and and that stadium will be hosting games at the European Championships in the summer. It's it's a really fantastic arena, and and really just in general, going to the Basque Country in Spain, um, you know, because it's sort of considered a country within a country, um, it, it, they're very proud people. It's it, it's it's generally a very difficult place to go for football teams, not just Athletic Club, but also. Um, Real Sociedad at the Anoeta they've just uh, re- renovated their stadium it used to have a big running track around the outside of it and now they've they've brought it in and made it a lot more enclosed but even before then Barcelona had a really bad record at the Anoeta um, Ibar as well who are the, the kind of smaller sibling of, of the Basque country that, that that's one of the most difficult another really difficult place to go in La Liga so it's just something about I would almost compare it. I mean, maybe this is this is a wishful thinking on my part as a Scot. But in the, in the United Kingdom, whenever a a team comes up to Scotland, out we always like to think it's quite a difficult place to come. Just we we make things a little bit more intimidating for them. And I think it's 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 similar in the Basque Country and in, in, in Spanish soccer. See. I, I understand exactly where you're coming from with Scotland, and yet I feel like the reputation of like uh, cable knit sweaters and uh, tea makes that a little bit harder to, to sort of picture <laughs> in my head. So instead, I just go with Begbie, and then immediately I'm like, okay, yeah, I can imagine that <laughs> yes. being a hostile atmosphere. I'm with you on that yes. one. Yeah, oh. Basque Country is just uh, more exotic Begbies in the sand. <laughs> Well said. Um, so you mentioned it being a country within a country, sort of, or like that's the kind of perception. How much of that like extends to the fans themselves? Like, because I'm used to sort of the Concacaf hotels of if you go somewhere in Costa Rica or Honduras, they'll you know set, they're setting off flares outside the hotel. Does it go to mm-hmm. that extreme of like are the fans messing with the team bus? Are they messing with the team hotel? Or is it mostly just the atmosphere on game day in the stadium? Oh no, you you can get that. Um, there was a game. I think it was a Barcelona uh, Sostad game, maybe two or three years ago, where the 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 the, the bus. I don't think there was any kind of criminal damage caused, but I think it was quite an intimidating entrance for the the Barcelona bus into the stadium. I think in general that's quite a common thing in 
in Spanish football. You see, you see it at um, the Mestalla uh, with Valencia. They do that quite often, and and actually, if you, I know we've seen Liverpool do it recently in, in England, but they've kind of borrowed that from uh, kind of Iberian football. So it's it's certainly certainly very common, and and obviously. Now it's uh, entirely possible, if we're to go with the odds anyway, that we could have a Bass Derby in the, in the mm-hmm. final of the Copa del Rey with uh, Athletic Club and, and uh, La Real kind of separated in that uh, in those semi-finals and, and have games that they should win um, over two legs. So, I mean, that, that really would be um, quite fitting for a competition that's in a new format this season, which was designed to kind of... In previous years, the Copa del Rey has been criticised for favouring the, the big teams. The, the way that the, the, it had the two-legged affairs, the two-legged um, ties meant that upsets were really rare because a, a smaller team had to beat a bigger team twice to get through to the next round. They've now gone with the, 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 the single-game knockout format and it would be really fitting if we had a game, a Bass Derby in the final, which would showcase a match that... While it is one of the the most revered and and, and uh, fiercest rivalries in, in all of Spanish football, it, it doesn't get the spotlight of El Clasico or the Madrid derby or, or something like that. So be, I, I would really like to see that game happen in the final personally. So um, yeah, to illustrate your point, I think this is the first final we'll have that won't have Madrid or Barcelona in it since uh, for the first time since two thousand nine. Instead, we have uh, Sociedad versus uh, Mirandes in one semifinal, uh, Bilbao Granada in the other. We've talked a bit about Sociedad. We've talked a bit about Bilbao. Uh, I know nothing thing about Mirandes can we talk about them for a second yeah Mirandes they've really been kind of the the, the fairy tale tale if I can say that of, of the Copa del Rey this, this season I, I think it was um it was Sevilla that they beat in the quarterfinals um and um yeah they've they've just kind of risen through the pack I have to say I only watched them in that game against Sevilla and and, and really they, they did deserve to to win, um, Sevilla have been pretty poor since the, the the start of the year, so there was maybe a little bit of mitigation there. But fantastic to see a team. I mean, this is, is exactly what the change of format was supposed to was supposed to bring about was to give these teams of the, in the lower leagues a, a route into the latter rounds of the competition. And the fact that we don't have um, Atleti, it's not just Real Madrid. You know, it's we don't have Atleti, we don't have Valencia, we don't have Sevilla. You know, looking back over the winners of the Copa del Rey, you have to go back to to 2006 to get a team that isn't of, of those five um, to w- win the competition. That was Espanyol back in 2006. And, and, and so I think the Copa del Rey has been unloved in recent years. And, and Miranda is, is, is just an uh, uh, ex- example of how it's being loved again because uh, they've, they've, they've lit the tournament up, really. Um, one more question about Copa del Rey. This is more questions than I think I've ever asked about Copa del Rey. Um, <laughs> a lot of times in the FA Cup, I think people want there to be giant Gillings, big upsets. And yet when that ends up happening and you have two smaller clubs in the final, it tends to be then the narrative is like, ah, but who cares? It's two smaller teams. You don't have a big team in there. There's less interest. If you mm-hmm. do have a sort of all Basque final, do you think that that uh, keeps the eyes on that competition? Do you think people in Spain or, or further abroad are going to be really focused in on that final if and when you do get two Basque teams in it? I think it's probably the the best fixture you could hope for. If, if mm-hmm. it wasn't if it wasn't Real Madrid, Barcelona, or Atleti, even you know even if it was a final between Sevilla and Valencia, you know two of the two of the biggest clubs in Spain, I still think the Basque derby would 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 draw more eyes, draw more attention. Just because obviously you have that narrative um, already set, you know it's easier when there are things to to draw upon. Also, it should be said that Athletic Athletic, uh, Athletic Club are um, 
the second most successful team in the Copa del Rey's history. You know, they've, they've won it. Um, I think only Barcelona have won it more times than them. So the, the, these are successful teams. You know, they are big teams. They, they, they play in state-of-the-art modern stadiums. Um, and at the moment, I think in particular, because La Real and especially are, are so good to watch. I mean, Martin Odegaard has been one of the best players in the La Liga this season. Alexander Isak kind of had a a breakthrough moment against Real Madrid last week in, in, in scoring at, at the Bernabeu and, and and really he's now considered um, you know a star of the future having kind of failed to make the grade at Dortmund. Interestingly enough, Marco were reporting today that he has a buyout clause of 70 million euros but if Dortmund want to re-sign him it's only 30 million euros. So you know, it wouldn't surprise me if in the summer they they think hmm, maybe we could put this uh, Isaac Alexander Isaac alongside that other uh, young striker that they've had. Uh, they have Erling Haaland, but um, I've heard of him. Yeah, I've heard of him. Yes, yes, he's he's quite good. Um, what strike force that would be? Yeah, but um, yeah, I think I think uh, to answer your question, I think it, it will get a lot of attention. Um, it obviously naturally might not get the international attention of, a, of an El Clasico, but um, I personally, as I've said before, I, I would love to see that game in the final. So I do have uh, some questions, or at least one question about Martin Odegaard, but I want to move back to Barcelona for a minute. Uh, for a minute. Uh, after that loss in Copa del Rey, Sid Lowe wrote an article for The Guardian that sort of uh, depicted Barcelona as being in this chaotic freefall, that they had lots of issues that they sort of needed to deal with, uh, both on the field and off the field. They won this weekend in a somewhat gritty style that I found uh, somewhat impressive. On a crisis scale of 1 to 10, I don't know what 10 would be. I don't think it's like extreme, extreme crisis, but it's it's somewhere up there. Where are Barcelona? Barcelona right now, in your opinion, with everything that's sort of going on, as I said, on and off the field? Measuring the, the crisis level of Barcelona at the moment, I think depends a lot on whether you're a Barcelona fan or not. <laughs> Very fair. <laughs> because, Very fair point. Because for Barcelona fans, and I had, uh, you mentioned there that win over Betis at the weekend, and I found that impressive as well. You know, the Benito Villamarina is, is one of the, the most difficult places to go in, in Spanish football. Betis are a decent team. And to get out of there with, with three points, I thought was impressive. And then immediately after the game, a Barcelona fan that, I, that I'm friends with messaged me to say, Setien's not going to last long at Barcelona. Hmm. And so he, was, he, wasn't unha- he wasn't happy with what he'd seen. And I do think Barcelona fans, you know, th- this may be slightly inflammatory, but I think I'm vindicated in saying so have unrealistic expectations. I think they have um, the, the Pep Guardiola era kind of raised the level to a, just a, a, a ridiculous height and, and no one has been able to reach that since. And so I think it's not a crisis for me. I think they have, I think at boardroom level, it is, there, are, there's, uh, there are troubles certainly. And I think the presidential election next year are, are arguably the most um, important elections in, in the club's recent history. Um, and I think people are, are expecting a, a fundamental change at, at boardroom level. And, and, and if that happens, you could see, I, I would predict, Xavi Hernandez coming back as, as head coach sooner rather than later. I think that's why he rejected the job when he was offered it um, after Valverde was sacked, as he's hoping for a change in, in, in the boardroom um, before he goes back. I even think that there would be a possibility of, of Guardiola himself going back to Barcelona if there is a change in, in the boardroom. The, the current regime uh, under Bartomeu is, is, is very unpopular. The, the transfer uh, policy is, is scattergun at best. I mean, I think they've spent 700 million euros in, in the past three to four years. And really, when you look at that, what have they got for their money? Antoine Griezmann is, is starting to come good, but there are still questions over what his role is in, in that team. And, and 
really between now and the end of the season with Suarez out injured and Usman Dembele out injured until the end of the season, they're relying on 17-year-old Ansu Fati to, to play pretty much every minute until from now until the end of the season. And he is a, a hugely talented player and, I, and I, I don't think it's going over the top to say he's the best young player to come out of La Masia since Messi, but he's 17 years old and he cannot be playing every single minute for a club like Barcelona who are going after La Liga um, and, and the Champions League in the same season. So I, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a crisis. I think Barcelona is, is a pretty toxic environment at the moment. Um, we saw that in the, the public fallout between Eric Abidal and, and Lionel Messi. Um, last week, where if you follow that story, it's uh, you know Abidal basically said that 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 players were were also to blame for the poor results and performances under Valverde, and then Messi hit back. Um, obviously, with Abidal Abidal being a former teammate of his, so that adds a, adds another layer to that. He hits back and said, "Well, basically, you need to name some names of who of who isn't carrying, uh, who isn't pulling their weight." So I think it, it could be a crisis if, if, if Messi were to leave. I still think that's really unlikely, but there's speculation swirling at the moment. Man City, I think it's a bit of an open secret that they have, they've had contact with Messi over the past maybe two to three years since Guardiola um, came to the club. It's kind of a, a bit of a pipe dream. I don't think they truly believe that they will, he'll ever make the move to City. But if he's serious about being unhappy and he can leave Barcelona at the end of the season on a free which is utterly remarkable, but that's a clause that is written into Messi's contract that he can actually leave uh, Camp Nou at the, at the end of the season. Man City, the only club that I would see him going to, and at that point, I think that's when you would call a crisis at Barcelona because I think Barcelona will, in much the, way, the same way Manchester United have struggled for an identity in the, in the post-Ferguson years, I think Barcelona will also struggle in the post-Messi years whenever they come, to fo- not just in terms of results, but in terms of an identity and, and who they are as, as, a, as a club. I think that is looming. And, and there is a chance, a slim one, that that could come this summer. That's crisis point if that happens. Hey folks, more still to come from my conversation with Graham Ruthven, but first I wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Roman. Uh, if you were to guess, on average, how many days uh, do people in the United States have to wait to see a doctor? Uh, you might think maybe a week, you might think a little bit longer. Uh, the average, it seems, is 29 days in most major U.S. cities. That's basically a month, and if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment as quickly as possible, and probably as discreetly as possible. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with doctors licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. So uh, I'm recording this on a day when it is cold outside, it is raining outside, I don't feel like going outside. So if you don't feel like going outside to deal with a doctor, uh, Roman makes it convenient to get your treatment you need on your schedule. You can grab your phone or your computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. The doctor decides that treatment is right for you. Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you free with two-day shipping. It's all very simple. It's all very straightforward. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com. Dot com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. One more time, that's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Thank you very much to Roman for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to my chat with Graham. 
Uh, I've got a couple questions in there because that was all fascinating. Uh, I want to start with the idea of Messi going to Manchester City, uh, mostly focusing on, in my mind, when Pep Guardiola sort of finished up at Barcelona, obviously finished up successfully, but there started to be stories, at least in my memory, of Messi maybe not getting along as well with Guardiola. I remember a story about him like drinking soda after Pep had said, like, no more soda, Messi deliberately drank one. Maybe I'm overblowing that, but I remember there being sort of these stories of friction between the two, and you had similar stories with Pep at Bayern Munich. So with Messi, first of all, were those relationships sort of fragmented? Or is this sort of what happens with Pep because he is so intense and then maybe absence makes the heart grow fonder once somebody else comes in and doesn't perform the way Pep did? Yeah, I think I think it's more of more of the latter. I think um, Pep Guardiola, I, I don't think there's a player that he has coached that he hasn't had a bit of friction with. I think that's, that's just the nature of the guy. I think... Um, He's probably not a very easy person to get on with. I'm not entirely sure if if Messi and Guardiola. Were, I don't even know if they would say they're they're best of friends. You know, I I think that I think they they have a respect for each other and they know that the the two of the two of them were 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 great for each other. You know, Messi was great for for Guardiola and Guardiola was 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 great for Messi. And I think particularly quite recently, Pep Guardiola has been quite irritable at Manchester City. He hasn't been in a good mood. He's been very prickly with the media, and two or three times. This season, he has been asked about the level of of his players, and he has unprompted me- mentioned Lionel Messi as as the greatest of all time. I think there was a, a question recently. You know, I think it was maybe Kevin De Bruyne. He was he was asked is, is Kevin De Bruyne playing at the level of of Lionel Messi and and Ronaldo? And without hesitation, Guardiola hit back. No, he's not playing at the level of Lionel Messi because no one can play at the, the level of Lionel Messi. And then went on to praise De Bruyne and saying, but below that level, yes, he is. He's maybe the best in the world, um, so I think I think that Guardiola still idolizes Lionel Messi. It's a little bit more difficult to know what the relationship is on the other side because because Messi doesn't speak. I mean, <laughs> I, I I couldn't even recall it in in my mind now what kind of Lionel Messi's voice sounds like. That's how how often, how often yeah. you hear from him. You know, after the games, you never hear from him. He never does pre or post. I actually, think that's a little bit of a shame. You know that. Um, you know he's the greatest player of all time, and we we know so little about the guy. So it's it, it's difficult to to know how he feels about Guardiola. But all the reports, and I mean, and it, it's it's quite um, substantial reporting going on, particularly in England. It claims that that Manchester City have had this contact with Messi for a number of years, and this is this is how they got Guardiola in the first place. You know, Guardiola was wanted by Manchester City after he left Barcelona. He went to Bayern Munich for three years. Manchester City kept contact with him. They kind of brought in some of his former colleagues from Barcelona um, to work at boardroom level at the Etihad Stadium. And eventually they got their guy. And I think, as I keep saying, I don't think it will happen. I think there's a slim chance. But they are. I think Manchester City are putting the effort in in a similar way to how they got Guardiola to maybe tempt Messi if he decides... Much like Cristiano Ronaldo did with with Real Madrid, I don't think many expected him to leave Real Madrid, but he was pushed to the to the edge and he, and he made a decision. I think Manchester City are making sure that if Messi does leave Barcelona, they are the only club that he's going to go and sign for. So, are you trying to tell me that it's important to have a long term uh, acquisition strategy and people in charge who know what they're doing? Are you saying that that's important? Because that seems like shocking news to a lot of clubs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, that is important. So. <laughs> Bertel Manchester <laughs> How did you possibly know who I was alluding to? Uh, I'm also sort of reeling from, you're absolutely right that it's been forever since I heard Messi speak. Even in the commercials he's in, they find a way to not have him talk very much. That's a very 
strong point. He did do, I guess, a little bit of talking via text uh, about uh, – in response to the Abidal comments. From my understanding, part of that was also that he – wasn't necessarily a fan of Ernesto Valverde, but wasn't on the he-needs-to-go sort of bandwagon. It sounds like mm-hmm. he was in that group, as was Luis Suarez. Is that correct, that maybe they were more okay with Valverde sticking around? Yeah, I, th- I think um, the reports, obviously, I, I don't have my own information, but just going from from uh, what, what's been on the grapevine and in, in reports, yeah, was, Messi was not as desperate to see Valverde um, go as maybe some other people were. Interesting, interesting. So then, do you, does that mean um, with Valverde departing, like, do you think that was the correct decision then? Because it seems like a lot of the narrative has been they were moving away from the Barcelona style, they were moving away from the traditional philosophy and approach to, mm-hmm. to, to football. Do you feel like that was maybe the case, or is that an argument for Barcelona fans and maybe the board who are trying to sell this move because maybe he wasn't as like attractive as a coaching as a, a name as say maybe Xavi or Pep. I think Barcelona um, under Valverde had certainly reached the end of a cycle. However, I would have said that that cycle finished last summer. I think that was the point to to, to make a decision on Valverde and, and, and make a managerial change. What I do think is, is nuts, and it, and it kind of uh, reeks of, of desperation, is that they, ma- they made the, the decision to get rid of Valverde midway through the season and, and appointed someone who is his ideological antithesis you know Kike Setien is is an idealist whereas Valverde was a pragmatist and so to make that change it it, it just it, it it was crazy to me I think mm. Setien may be a good Barcelona manager but he, he needs a he needs a full pre-season to get his ideas in, and it, he actually needs more than a full pre-season you know ideally you'd want maybe you'd say maybe two or three months it would take before Setien's ideas start to take root in players, we saw that at, at Las Palmas and, and at uh, Real Betis, and we, we've, we've seen it at Barcelona already. You know they've been kind of hit or miss. They've, they've been excellent in some games and really poor in other games. And and to make that change while you're in the middle of a, a title race, let's not forget that mm-hmm. when, Val, when Valverde was uh, sacked, Barcelona were, were top of La Liga on uh, on goal difference. They were actually top of the table. Um, I, I think. Having come that far with Valverde, I would have given him till the end of the season. It was a very strange time to make the decision. It, obviously, it was after the um, the Spanish Supercopa, which I know the the Spanish Football Federation have tried to paint that as a as a as, as a, a competitive trophy, you know, a, a trophy to be desired. But it is essentially the Community Shield of of Spanish football. And so to to make it such a big decision on the back of a defeat in, in that competition was was really bizarre. And and just underlines the kind of lack of direction at Barcelona at the moment. I think um, at boardroom level, they don't really know whether they're, they're coming or going. They don't really know whether um, they're signing players for now or for the future. And and there's just not much kind of patience, you know, that when they do sign players for the future. They, some players, I mean, Yerry Mina, who I, I'm not sure whether he was up to Barcelona's standard anyway, but... He played maybe he was brought in. He played maybe three or four games, and then he was gone in six months. And I'm using that as an as an example of how Barcelona just don't seem to have a vision of of, of two three years down the line. And and this Setien appointment, I think, exposes that. I mean, if you're going for if you're going for a manager like him, why would you not wait until the summer to give him the time that he needs to to implement his methods? So. It, it was a really strange one for me, and actually, I think it, it could end up costing Barcelona the title. I think Real Madrid now have to be the favourites, given the the difficulties Barcelona are having in, in transitioning into that new style. 
it's really wild to hear you say because I don't disagree with anything you're saying. But when you're talking about a Spanish giant who are overspending, spending way too much money to bring in these big name players, they don't seem to have an emphasis on the future. It's more about maybe trying to win right now, but maybe for the future. But you know what? Let's just sign another player and see what happens. That feels like the stereotypical description of Real Madrid. And so or maybe that's just to me as an outsider. But in contrast to that, Madrid, who were also eliminated in the Copa del Rey, seem like they have maybe the deepest squad they could possibly have. What do you think accounts for that? How have they been so good in that recent recruitment? Or am I giving them too much credit? Is this from the, the Real Madrid perspective, yes. the, their mm-hmm. recruitment? Yeah, I, I think their summer recruitment was was very good. Um, I think they targeted a number of players who who filled kind of problem areas. I think the best example is maybe Ferland Mendy at, at left mm-hmm. back. Mar- Marcelo, I think, now there's no doubt. I, th- I think he's been a great servant to Real Madrid. He's he's still got something left in the tank, but I think for Real Madrid, he's he's finished. And I think he'll probably leave in the summer. And that he was picked for that game against uh, Real Sociedad in the Copa del Rey, and that kind of exposed him a little bit just how much better Mendy is than him at the moment. So Mendy has been an excellent signing. Militao has given a, a bit of kind of defensive depth when uh, Varane and, and and Ramos need a bit of a. A rest. Um, Rodrigo has been excellent, maybe the breakthrough star in, in La Liga this season, the, the Brazilian teenager. And he's been particularly important because one of the... the, the I'm reluctant to call him a, a failure yet because it's, it's harsh to call him a failure when he's been out with injury. But Eden Hazard has probably been the, the biggest disappointment. He's just, he's just not got going for Real Madrid yet. And now there's talk that he's going to miss another month and... and by the time he gets back to fitness, it's going to be the end of the season. So it's really going to be a whole season written off for him. But the performances of Rodrigo have, have really compensated for that. And, and he, he looks like a star. Not only um, is, does he have the ability, but he's got the mindset. I mean, another Brazilian teenager who broke through last season was Vinicius. And he seems to have struggled a bit more with the expectation of playing for a club like Real Madrid. Whereas Rodrigo, his countryman, has just taken it in his stride. I think one of the the big um, plus points from Real Madrid's season and their and their recruitment, uh, although that's maybe not the right term because he was already on their their books, he was out on loan last season. It's, it's Fede Valverde in yeah. the centre of mid- midfield, who has basically become the the Pogba that Real Madrid thought that they they needed. I mean, Real Madrid now I don't see them signing Paul Pogba in the summer purely because of Valverde. He's been brilliant and he's one of the first names on on the team sheet now for Zidane. Um, he brings a lot of drive. He's, he's even got a bit of goal threat. Um, and particularly with Kroos and, and Modric ageing a little bit and maybe not being able to cover the ground that they they once were able to, I think Valverde has been so important. So, yeah, their, their, their recruitment has been good, Real Madrid. And, 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 and you're right, that it's almost like they flipped roles, particularly, I think, a couple of years ago when Real Madrid were trying to bring through the Spanish core of, of uh, Isco and, and uh, Marcos Llorente, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm trying to think. And Danny Ceballos would he be in there, or is that a little bit too old? <laughs> well, he, yeah, Lucas Vasquez is, is a bit like the the Jesse Lingard of, yeah. of the league, isn't he? You know, people <laughs> think he's about 23, and then you check him, and he goes, he, he's almost 30. I did that last <laughs> night, and I was blown away. <laughs> yeah, the the the, the oldest uh, young man in, in world football is uh, <laughs> Lucas Vasquez. But yeah. There is that Spanish core of, of, of players that Real Madrid have, which you would, as, as you rightfully say, you would normally say synonymous with Barcelona. So it, they have almost switched roles a little bit. And I think that that um, 
that illustrates what Barcelona's fans want to go back to. They see they see see players like Ansu Fati, and and they they instantly have a relationship with him because he's a La Masia uh, product, and 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 players like Ricky Pugh as well, who's coming through um, the the youth academy and and has been given a first team chance by Seti, and he's another one. I think Barcelona want to go back to that, mm-hmm. but obviously it depends on whether they 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 have the talent coming through the youth academy, and if they don't, well, it's not going to work. So Madrid have uh, like all that talent they've brought in. Then they've got a, a number of very talented players on loan. Uh, I'm wondering of the players that, that are currently out right now, uh, if and when they come back to Real Madrid, who do you think is likely to have the biggest impact? Doesn't have to be one, but you've got uh, Martin Odegaard, you've got Takafusa Kubo, uh, you've got uh, Ashraf Hakimi, Mayoral, Oscar, Lucas Zidane, even maybe if they need a goalkeeper. Who knows? Uh, who of those loanees or of any other loanees I haven't mentioned do you think could end up having the biggest impact for Real Madrid maybe next season? the season after um, in terms of the an immediate impact I think mm-hmm. um, Akraf Hakimi maybe mm-hmm. I think a, a right back just because look Danny Carvajal is, is, is playing well he's he's a first team figure for Real Madrid I wouldn't say he's playing poorly but it, it, you could say that he's maybe one of the one of the positions you, you might be able to upgrade on and I think Hakimi for Dortmund has has been sensational this season I mean he's not just a He's not just a right back, is he? He's he's a, a right winger. He's a full right wing in, in yeah. one person, quite similar to how I suppose Dani Alves was for for Barcelona for a number of years. You know, you stick him out on the right side, and you almost can completely forget about that side of the pitch because he's got it. He's got it controlled. And I think, in in the immediate term, he's maybe the one. I think if he's com- coming back to Real Madrid next season, he might go straight back into the into the starting lineup. Um, which is quite ironic that he would replace Carvajal because Carvajal did something similar in going to the Bundesliga, um, proving himself, and then coming back to Real Madrid for a starting place. So he, you know the, the, the precedent has been set there um, for Hakimi by the player that he might be replacing at Real Madrid. I think obvi- the obvious one everyone would talk about is Odegaard. Um, he has, no exaggeration, been one of the best players in La Liga this season. It's been a real breakout season. Obviously, we all knew he had... He had great talent, but there were questions over consistency and whether he could do it at the top level. And I don't think those questions exist anymore. I think he's on a two-year deal, uh, um, a two-year loan deal at, at Real Sociedad. I'd be surprised if he sees out those two years um, at the Anoeta because I think Real Madrid will probably recall him in the summer. Who he replaces, I think he could be the, the Luka Modric replacement. I mean, that was that would be bold from Real Madrid. Modric, I, I think I'm right in saying he's out of contract at the end of the season. So this this move to Serie A has been on the cards for him for maybe two years now. So I think this might be the time that that, he, that maybe happens. And if that happens, I think Odegaard comes into into uh, into that starting lineup. However, I wouldn't rule out uh, I wouldn't rule out Real Madrid going out and maybe signing a, another player as well, just so that he isn't dropped in there straight away and, and has to play every single game. So, those are the those are the two I think in the immediate term I can see making an impact next season. If they were to go out and sign somebody, you mentioned maybe they don't need uh, Paul Pogba or that demand has diminished a little bit. They are still Real Madrid. They're not opposed to spending money and maybe they want to have that big, splashy signing. Where do you think is their biggest area of need and do you have an idea who they might be looking at to fill it? I think midfield is still an, an area of need for the, the reasons that I, I just said there. You know, With Modric coming to the end of, uh, of his contract, I think there is an expectation he might leave in the summer, as I say. So while Pogba... I don't think Real Madrid are willing to spend the 150 million euros that Manchester United supposedly want for for Pogba, particularly with Valverde kind of filling that 
that energetic midfield role. They kind of want more of a a passer, a, a, you know, someone who can pick a pass, unlock a, a defence on the edge of the box, which is what Modric is at the moment. So the name that's been mentioned a lot in the Spanish media over the past six months is uh, Donny van de Beek at Ajax. Uh, Zidane is supposedly a big fan of his. They were... They, they they've tried to get they tried to get him last summer when it when it when it was became clear that Pogba was wasn't going to go that was kind of a half-hearted attempt though they I think they just kind of were testing the water with Ajax there were there were claims that they would go back from in January that never really materialized so you would think maybe this summer that that long-standing interest might be firmed up and he would certainly fit the the kind of Modric mould, you know, someone who is, is energetic but is, is very technical with the ball at his feet who can, as I say, unlock a opposition defence and, and someone who is young and who has also proven at the top level. I mean, he, he was one of the best players on the pitch when Ajax dismantled Real Madrid at the Bernabeu uh, last season. So, um, yeah, he certainly made a good impression and, and I think if that's where they're going for, um, if that's the area of the pitch that they see um, need to strengthen, then I think Van de Beek is maybe the guy they go for. So Real Madrid, top of the table, fairly rosy situation. Uh, Atleti currently fourth, still alive in the Champions League, but this season can't really be considered a success, at least not at present. What do you think of in the primary issues for Atleti, and, and how do you think they progress from here? Was this weekend maybe the, the start of the turnaround with a 1-0 win? You know, the, the, that game against Granada was really funny. Obviously, at the moment, Atleti are in the business of just picking up wins where they can. It's been a real struggle recently. So a 1-0 win, even at home against Granada, has to be considered a positive. But I still thought it was it was a really turgid performance. They 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 just they're in between two identities, Atletico Madrid. You know, the summer they wanted to become more expansive and dynamic. And so with that, Simeone was willing to leave behind the the conservatism of of uh, Chilismo as it, as as his kind of philosophy is called. But while they have left that behind, and Atleti aren't anywhere near as strong, um, both defensively and mentally as a team, they've not moved to a more kind of ta- attacking, dynamic style. So they're 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 conceding more, and they're struggling for goals, which is it's basically the worst mix as as a as a, yeah. as a soccer team. You know that's not what you want. Um, injuries have been a problem for them recently. I think it has to be mentioned. I mean, Koke has been out injured. Kieran Trippier, who has been probably one of their better uh, summer signings. He's been out injured. Yal Felix, who has kind of struggled to find a role in this team. Is he a wide man? Is he a second striker? Is he a is he a striker himself? Is he a is he a midfielder? You know what is he? I don't think Diego Simeone really knows what he is at the moment. But he's been out injured. Um, there are players that I've I've forgotten about who are also be injured. You know, two or three others. Mm-hmm. So I think that has to be mentioned. I think Atleti are, are their whole season is now pivoting on this Champions League tie against Liverpool, um, it's, which is maybe not, not the team not you ideal. want to face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not the team you want to face when you're you're in poor form and, and struggling for a bit of an identity at the moment. But I, I think I, I read a comparison um, to it was Zidane's last season at Real Madrid where Real Madrid were in really poor form and there was this PSG game in the Champions League coming up. And they almost geared everything towards this game. It was an all or nothing. Zidane would have lost his job if he had um, lost that game to PSG. Real Madrid got through that round and then they went on to, to win the Champions League again and, and, and everything was rosy. I'm not saying Simeone will lose his job if he loses to Liverpool. He, I don't think he, he will. I think he'll even get next season. There's been a slight change in tone almost. I think 
while 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 the, the the results were poor up until Christmas, there was kind of this building tension, and there were some pr- protests against Simeone, which was, you know, is unimaginable given what he's, is, he's uh, achieved at the club. But I think now that the fans have almost accepted that this season as a bit of a write-off, and that this these issues are real and that they need to be confronted. There's almost been a change of tone, and that now Simeone's getting a lot of support, and I think Atleti fans realise that maybe they're not going to get anyone better to turn this this club around. It's almost quite similar to a, a Spurs yeah. situation with Pochettino, except I think the way this is trending, it seems like Atleti are going to go in the other direction to Spurs. You know, Spurs made the big call to get rid of Pochettino, and I think it seems like Atleti are going to give Simeone the chance to rebuild this team. Um, and I think, that, as I say, there has been a change of tone. I think the fans now aren't quite as restless as they were before Christmas. And I think they are accepting that this might be a long-term project, another long-term project for Simeone. But in the immediate term, yeah, it's not good. I mean, they're struggling to win basically any game they play. That game against Granada should have been a comfortable win for them. And and that was a slog fest as well. So it's really tough for them right now. So if the maybe the fans are a bit more behind the team than they've been, it feels like Simeone has the backing of the board. And if they are putting all of the focus on the Liverpool uh, fixture, or at least a lot of focus on that one. I know you're not saying like they're definitely going to win and we shouldn't expect that, but is it, is it fair to say then that maybe this will be a closer tie than people are expecting? Because my assumption is that when people start previewing this game, it's going to be sort of looking at the other three La Liga teams and then also like, oh, and Atleti Liverpool, we know how that's going to go. Like, Is it mm-hmm. fair to say that you can't really dismiss them outright as maybe as much as you think you might be able to? Yeah, I, I, definitely. I mean, Atleti are still a, a decent team. I mean, they're they're fourth place in in La Liga, which is not where they want to be. But the, you know, that's that's still a you know they're still going to they're still on course to qualify for the next season's Champions League. I mean, if you look at the the big games that they have played, they still have that kind of big game mentality where they do make things difficult. I mean, they beat Barcelona in the the Spanish Supercopa just last month, and then in the final they. They only lost on uh, was it a penalty shootout or, or a late goal in extra time? I think I think it was a penalty shootout uh, to Real Madrid in the final. So they they do they do still tighten up games against the big teams, and that's almost like going back to their default. So I think in particular the game at the Metropolitano will be a tight one. I think I still see Liverpool going through reasonably comfortably just through. At the Anfield factor, I think Liverpool will will win maybe two 0 at, at, at Anfield. But you, you definitely cannot uh, discount Atleti at the moment. I mean, they, if if they get some injuries back, I think Kieran Trippier is, is is back for that Liverpool game. Yal Felix is expected to be back as well. So they have a, they have a, on paper they have a good team, but the issue has been that that hasn't been translating into anything on the pitch. But don't discount them just uh, you know bottling lightning for one game. Let's stay with the Champions League uh, for a second here. Uh, you've got uh, Atalanta, Valencia, Napoli, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Man City. We've talked a lot about Real Madrid and Barcelona. Let's talk a little bit about Valencia and that matchup with Atalanta. What are you expecting and what does maybe success look like for Valencia, for Valencia aside from obviously just winning and advancing? What do you think they're going to need to do or how do you expect them to, to play in these in that uh, matchup? I think they need to to find their spark and attack uh, Valencia. I mean, they they have some good players uh, in attack. I mean, obviously Rodrigo, another window where everyone expected Rodrigo to to leave Valencia, and in the end, he's he's stayed where he, where he was at the beginning of the window. He's kind of been distracted. Maxi Gomez is is, is another excellent 
um, centre forward, out and out centre forward, the kind of likes you, you maybe don't see that many of anymore. But then, you know, you've got uh, Danny Parejo, um, Gaia, left back. I mean, Valencia are a good team, you know, and, and I think their, their season had, had been going relatively well with that, uh, that win, up until that win over Barcelona um, at the Mestalla at the end of January. And then they've kind of, they've kind of dropped off since then. I mean, they, they ended up um, just scraping past, uh, I think it was Leon, cultural Leonisa and, and the Copa del Rey, and then scraping past Celta Vigo and then losing to Granada. And then at the weekend was a bit of a disaster for them, losing 3-0 to Hitafe. Um, so the, the, the common denominator in there is, is, is a lack of goals. And I think they need to uh, rediscover that spark because they, they do have one of the best attacks um, you know, in Spanish football. I mean, and, and, and they also have an excellent central midfield as well. I mean, Francis Coquelin and, and, and Condogbia, I mean, you don't get past them very easily. Um, Soler, you know, is, 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 is an excellent pass master, can unlock a, unlock a defence with an excellent pass. Ferran uh, Torres has to be considered one of the best young players in, in, in Spanish football. Kevin Gamero is still on their books. You know, he's he's not been the same player for maybe a couple seasons now, but is, is a proven goal scorer. So there's no reason why they shouldn't be scoring goals, but they need to find that scoring touch again before that game against Atlanta. Uh, as you said, they did not find that scoring touch against Hatafe this past weekend. Uh, Hatafe now, I believe, in third place. They haven't conceded a goal in the league since early January, like January 10th, I think it was when I looked. Uh, they bested Rabatis, uh, Bilbao, Valencia. Uh, in that 3-0 win, they, I think they, it, the, the stat I saw, I'm pulling it up, uh, was from Sid Lowe again. He said Hatafe's uh, entire starting 11 uh, cost less than Valencia's uh, starting striker. How have Hatafe been able to sort of put together this string of results? How have they been so good this season and how much of it is down to their manager Jose Bordalas? Yeah, uh, so much is down to Bordalas. He's he is uh, the, the man who has brought this together. I mean, the most remarkable thing about Hitafi is that their success is no longer seen as unexpected or remarkable in itself. I mean, the win over Valencia at the weekend, okay, maybe we didn't expect 3 0 because Hitafi don't tend to score that many goals, but I think a, a win was maybe expected of Hitafi, particularly at home. I mean, that. That's just remarkable that they're going into games like that as maybe the, the, the slight favourites. I mean, this is a team that has, I think, the sixth smallest budget in La Liga. They've got the third smallest stadium. They were only founded in 1983, um, which an <laughs> interesting bit of uh, trivia that you can use for the pub quiz is that Jorge Molina, at 37 years old, is a year older than the club he plays for, which <laughs> kind of underlines right. that, just how far Hitafe have come. I mean... Uh, to be third in La Liga now, I think they're only maybe nine or ten points off Real Madrid at the top. Um, it, it's it's a remarkable story, and 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 after last season where they missed out on Champions League qualification um, on the last day of the season to Valencia, that win at the weekend will have felt quite sweet because not only it was it was a win against a team that that kind of snatched that Champions League spot away from them last year, but it, it lifted them up to third place. And and when you consider that. Atleti are struggling, Valencia are hot and cold, Sevilla have been really poor since the, the turn of the year. Um, you'd have to say Hatafi are, are maybe favourites of that group to, to finish in the, in the top four, but it's a, it's a remarkable success story. You go through their team, I mean, they have good players. I mean, Denis Suarez is a decent player, Cucurella has been excellent on loan from, from Barcelona. But these are these are not players that you would expect to 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 be playing at such a high level. And Bordelas has has done the 
the the most a, a football manager, a soccer manager can do in building a team that is much, much more than the sum of its parts. And I, I think that's that's the the mark of, of a good manager as if you can achieve that. And he certainly achieved that at Hitafe. Uh Final question for you. We've talked a bit about the top of the table. Let's go to the bottom. Do you think we sort of already have our three that are most likely to get relegated in Mallorca, Leganes, and Espanyol? It seems like maybe a little bit of a gap is forming there. Or is there a chance that we see maybe Celta Vigo or Ibar, even Valladolid, uh, slip in to the relegation zone? Well, I think on current form, you'd have to say that Espanyol stand a good chance mm-hmm. of, of getting out of there. They looked they looked doomed um, under uh, Pablo Machín. They've had a a, a, cha- a change of manager. Uh, Abelardo's come in, and ev- even more significantly, uh, Raúl de Thomas has come into that team from from Benfica, and I think he scored in his first he scored in each of his first four games for Espanyol, and and really that has been a total cath- catalyst. They were they were cut adrift. At the bottom of, of La Liga, I think I'm just looking at the table now. Yeah, they're 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 tied with Mallorca and Leganes on on 18 points, just two points short of of Celta Vigo. And if Celta Vigo hadn't pulled off that surprise win against uh, Sevilla the weekend, Espanyol would have been would have been out of the out of the bottom three, which would have been unimaginable just a few uh, weeks ago. So uh, above that bottom three, it's difficult to call. It. I mean, Celta Vigo, as long as they have uh, Iago Aspas. Who is is a complete talisman for that club? I mean, he basically saved them last season. Came back from injury, uh, dragged them out of the bottom three, and saved them. I think as long as they have him, they they maybe have an advantage over the rest. But if you look at, at, at Ibar, I mean, their, their form is, is isn't particularly good. Valladolid, as one of the clubs, I think they've maybe got the, the second smallest budget in La Liga. You'd have to worry for them. Um, so I think Leganes and Mallorca are, are going to find things difficult, particularly Mallorca. I mean, their, their biggest strength is the travelling that the opposition teams have to have to uh, go through to, to to play in Mallorca. That's that's always a difficult place to go. They beat Real Madrid there earlier in the season, but as a team, I think they're lacking. Um, of the three at the bottom of the table, I think Espanyol. I would I would say they they stand a good chance of clawing their way out of trouble. And then we, we keep our uh, Catalan derby as well, or rivalry, to bring it full circle. Maybe not necessarily a derby. Uh, but, Graham, I really well, see, appreciate... that one. that what? one would be a derby. Okay, all right. So, all right, <laughs> so would, oh, same city, right? Then it's allowed. Okay, right, right, right. All right, I get you. But D.C., <laughs> New York, not a derby. We, we, we're not clear derby, on that one? No. All right. Not having that. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, well, Graham, I really appreciate you taking all the time to make sense of Copa del Rey, La Liga, and the Champions League. Uh, I'm going to be previewing uh, At- Atalanta Valencia, so I was taking copious notes just then, so thank you for that. Uh, thank you for all that you do if people want to hear more from you read more from you how can they find you on twitter at graham ruthven all one word or all lowercase and i also write for uh, eurosport and the guardian and forbes and a few others as well there we are all right well graham thank you very much enjoy your fine scottish weather and we will talk to you soon thanks taylor